Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This week's Ocean Advocate is Dr. Gordon Ober. Gordon is a recent PhD graduate explaining the latest oceanography literature as a writer and editor for Ocean Bites, a graduate student-run blog. Hi, Gordon. Welcome to the show. Hey, Allison. How's it going? Good. Very excited to talk to you today. For listeners, like I mentioned in the intro, Gordon is a recent PhD graduate, and by recent, I mean he received his PhD about two months ago, (laughs) so he's fresh off the blocks, and it's absolutely a really impressive accomplishment, obviously. Gordon, I'd love it if you could explain to listeners, maybe some of our listeners aren't super familiar with what earning a PhD entails. Could you describe that process, you know, in terms of how long does it take and what are the requirements kind of on a standard level? So it's funny when people ask me about being in a PhD program or still being in school, I try to stop them right there and say, well, it doesn't really feel like school. It's honestly more like a job. You know, I was fortunate enough to be in a program where I entered in and was getting paid to be a teaching assistant for, you know, certain biology labs or getting pulled into research projects and getting paid to be a research assistant, as well as uh, procuring some of my own fellowships to provide funding. So it doesn't quite feel like school. There, There is obviously a little bit of coursework involved, but it doesn't quite have that feel of high school or, or an undergraduate education where, you know, it's really more about kind of memorizing facts. In a graduate program, especially a PhD program, it's more discussion oriented. It's more being able to look at something analytically um, and being able to apply it. So it, it's it's interesting. And, I, you know, I've been in this program or I, I just finished up, took about a little over five years to do. I jumped in without having a master's degree, which some people will get that first and then transition to a PhD. But for anybody out there who's applied to graduate school, when I was doing it, I realized, "Eh, I don't know if I really want to do this again. So I might as well just go for the PhD now, save myself from having to reapply uh, from a master's program to a PhD program. And so you just received your PhD at the University of Rhode Island. And your research was focused on climate change and how it's affecting coastal organisms and ecosystems, how those coastal organisms interact in the face of climate change. And kind of under climate change, you a lot of your research was focused on ocean acidification. And for listeners, you guys might remember a few episodes back, I had Caitlin Louder on the podcast and she was a graduate. She is a graduate student at Scripps Institution of Oceanography also studying ocean acidification and its effects on organisms. I'll refresh your guys' memory on ocean of ocean acidification here a little bit. It is basically the ocean is becoming more acidic, just slightly, but it is. And it is a side effect of climate change because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere. The ocean is absorbing more of it, and it is actually changing the pH of the ocean overall, making it more acidic. So obviously that's going to stir some things up in the ocean and Lots of scientists like Gordon and like Caitlin, they are studying it, which is very helpful. It's a great topic right now in ocean science. So 
Gordon, your research was, from my understanding, primarily focused on kind of looking at marine algaes, seaweeds, if you will, Mm -hmm. and the herbivores that feed on them. And one thing that I saw that was really interesting in reading about your research is that some of the algae species, some of the seaweeds, were doing really, really good in the face of these kind of more acidic ocean conditions. And a lot or most of the herbivores were doing really bad. Can you explain how you came to those findings and what's your rationale or reasoning behind those observations? So it's funny when when I talk about acidification, still most of the research involved in that field focuses on calcifying marine organisms. So those are things with uh, those hard shells or exoskeletons, so things like corals and, and shellfish. And a lot of the research has focused on them because they're the ones expected to perform really poorly under those future conditions. But if you look at other organisms that don't have to worry about having a hard shell or an exoskeleton, they can actually benefit from some of those chemical changes within the ocean that's, that's associated with acidification. So things like seaweeds or macroalgae, they're fleshy, they're soft, they use photosynthesis, so this process that takes in carbon dioxide and, and creates energy and produces oxygen they're going to do quite well under those conditions because you know, one of the side effects of acidification is that there's more carbon dioxide in the water column. So there's going to be more of that available for them to use for their own uh, certain processes. So under those conditions, they thrive. They do really well. But the problem is, is when you start kind of looking at that in terms of a, how a community itself responds, and so while it's nice to see that maybe one group of organisms does well, that often comes at the expense of others. And one of the most important things for a healthy ecosystem is to have balance and to have diversity. Uh, So one of the big issues right now, a lot of people are kind of studying the dynamics between say corals in a coral reef and the algae that also live in a coral reef. So corals are gonna struggle under the future, under future conditions and seaweeds are gonna do really well. We're talking about a pretty big replacement, a really big shift in that ecosystem. And that could have major, major rippling effects that are going to hit pretty much every other organism. Now, what I wanted to do specifically with my research was really to kind of take that community aspect to it. So a lot of the a lot of climate change research still kind of focuses on the response of just one organism or, or one species. And I really wanted to see because you know communities are so dynamic and there's so many levels, there's so many layers. And so I had gotten in, into this field of acidification. I started doing a little bit of reading on the literature that was out there, which, you know, for somebody in my position, you kind of need to see what's been done before and, and kind of take from them and build on that or, or try to answer a, a slightly different question. And so knowing the success of seaweeds under these future conditions, I wanted to see, okay, well, if they're going to grow like crazy, there's still things that eat them. So how are those things going to do? And, and there's, there's other research that has been put out in the past few years that has shown despite seaweeds doing really well with climate change, usually things that eat them can actually ramp up their consumption. So they're going to start eating more, which actually ends up just kind of really reducing those initial effects of climate change on seaweeds. So, you know, I worked in a temperate coastal ecosystem, you know, off the coast of Rhode Island, uh, where we have a you know, pretty diverse group of seaweeds uh, and a lot of herbivores that will be more than happy to consume them. And so I I picked a couple kind of model species, species that were, you know, really dominant, play a big role in the community and the ecosystem. And 
what I found was, sure enough, our, our seaweed species do really well. And by the way, I'm doing all of this work in a, in a laboratory setting where I can kind of really finely control uh, the environmental parameters so I can mimic this expected acidification by adding more carbon dioxide into the water in my tanks. So we, we kind of run this in multiple parts where we can actually put seaweeds in these tanks, change the environment, and measure certain parameters, uh, trying to, to gauge their response to this changing condition. So once we kind of quantify their success, then we can say, all right, well, what happens when we fold in that next level of the food web? What's going to happen then? And so I worked with a, a pretty common grazing snail uh, found all across the East Coast and basically found that under normal conditions, they're more than happy to, to eat the seaweed. But as soon as you increase carbon dioxide, as soon as you kind of mimic that acidification, they get a little, a little too stressed out and they actually stop eating or eat about 50% less. Uh, they stop eating one of the two species I was working with. And in trying to investigate that a little bit further, I ran some physiological experiments just trying to look at, okay, what was acidification actually doing to their performance? And I, I looked at that via how much, they're, how much oxygen they're consuming, how, how active they are. And sure enough, under high CO2, under ocean acidification, they're breathing a lot less. They're consuming a lot less oxygen. They're less active. So this is really kind of contributing to these higher stress levels and you know, potentially to why they're eating a lot less. So it, it's tough you know, when you, you have a very diverse ecosystem and you're kind of hoping that with all of these, these creatures present that if, if one starts to kind of overgrow and almost do too well, that there's something else in that system to kind of keep it in check. Uh, and unfortunately, with the study species that I chose, we didn't find that. So this uh, reduced consumption when the snails kind of stopped eating this algae, that only exacerbates the problem of, of growing seaweeds in a coastal system. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So I think the the results that you found, while they're super interesting, they're also a little bit depressing. And I think that many results from climate change science, ocean acidification science are kind of sad. It's like, oh, well, we thought the algae was going to do really great, but that's going to really shift the ecosystem because there's no herbivore to eat it because they're stressed out. So for you as a scientist doing this research, how do you stay positive? Um, well, that's funny. I mean, it's, it is kind of hard kind of looking at this data and saying, well, man, this isn't so good for our, our local ecosystem here. But the thing to remember is, and I always try to tell myself this, and you'll find this in, in any scientific paper really, is that caveats are always listed, right? So with my work, I only looked at one herbivore. There are a number of other herbivores who might not experience that same stress from high CO2, and they might actually be able to come in and fill the role of this grazer that I tested. And I've seen that in other, in other research papers where as long as there's a diversity of grazers present, the ecosystem should remain balanced. And, you know, this all kind of ties into this ocean optimism piece where, you know, hopefully there's somebody out there, and when I say somebody, some organism in an ecosystem who can really kind of step up their ability to, to help keep the system balanced. Yeah, definitely ocean optimism is a great term. <laughs> so uh, like I also mentioned in the intro earlier, you are an editor and writer for Ocean Bites. And for listeners, that's not something that you eat from the ocean or, uh, you know, a bite that you might get from an animal in the ocean. It's a really cool graduate student run blog that uh, I've been following for 
quite a while now. I love what you guys do at Ocean Bites. Can you explain to listeners what is Ocean Bites, what it entails? Sure. It's kind of funny that you mentioned the food thing, though, just because early on we were uh, getting a lot of kind of cross traffic with there is an Ocean Bites restaurant, I think, in Maryland somewhere. So it's kind of funny. People would tell us that they would look it up and, and get linked to some you know poorly reviewed restaurant in Maryland. And we kind of got a kick out of that. So we had to kind of change our, our hashtag a little bit for that. But um, yeah, Ocean Bites is a graduate student run blog. It was started in the fall of 2013. So we're actually coming up on our three year anniversary. Carrie McDonough, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Rhode Island's Graduate School of Oceanography, she's a chemical oceanographer, she actually got the idea early in the summer in 2013 by chatting with some grad students at Harvard who had recently started a blog called Astrobytes. So you can see some similarity there where it was folks basically reporting on new cutting edge uh, literature in that field. And Carrie was pretty excited by that and brought that back to the University of Rhode Island and said, hey, guys, I think I have something like we should start something like this for you know work uh, under the umbrella of oceanography. And so a few of us kind of joined on at first. And basically, our goal was to each write one post a month. And our post kind of all started out the same way where we would be reading new scientific papers, typically in our field. So myself as an ecologist, I was reading a lot of marine ecology papers, community ecology papers. And our goal was then to basically take that paper, take that new research and summarize it for somebody with a high school level understanding of science to be able to understand. Because I'm sure if any reader has tried to dig into any number of scientific publications, there's often a lot of jargon. It can be really dense. And, you know, if you don't have that exact, very specific knowledge, it can be really hard to understand what's happening. And the unfortunate part about that, I guess, as a whole is that that's part of the problem with science right now is that because things are so specific and you have to use, you know, an exact lingo for your field that it often that information, your research, it doesn't leave your field. And that, that's some really important things that, that scientists are, are working really hard on that's really not making it very far out of their realm, which is unfortunate. And so you're trying to help it get out there by translating, you know, not only your own research, but others' research as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we'll read a paper and we will kind of come up with our relatively brief summary. So usually about 500 to 600 words. And we try to cut all the jargon. And that's you know, part of the reason why we have an editing process. So each one of us that writes for Ocean Bites, we have, you know, one day where we're writing and two days a month where we're editing. So there's this kind of give and take with the writers, and especially because we all come from different fields within this umbrella of oceanography, you know, so we have physical oceanographers, chemical oceanographers, biological oceanographers, uh, and all kind of wanting to write about their their own specific field because that's what they know best and that makes sense. So, you know, if I have to edit for somebody who's writing a, a paper about physical oceanography and some, you know, new model that's talking about currents around Antarctica, then I'm not going to know a lot of the lingo. So it's a really good kind of filter for them to have to go through me who doesn't have that knowledge per se to try to make sure that, yeah, you know, I can understand this. And, you know, you're doing a good job of explaining what are, are pretty complicated ideas. Yeah, that seems like a good kind of checks and balances system. And so is it all grad students from University of Rhode Island or are there 
students from kind of all over? Uh, we have students from all over, and we've actually slowly been growing uh, over the years. So right now we actually have 27 writers uh, from 11 different universities. Some of them have been international in the past. Uh, we have 16 alumni writers. And typically, you know, we're, we all start as grad students. And, you know, some of us just over the past couple of years have moved on to, you know, the next phase or, or you know, doing something else. But we, we try to keep people, you know, tapped in and still contributing if, if they want to. Um, and one of the things we added recently was uh, we brought on a, a writer who is translating our posts for uh, Spanish-speaking audiences, so trying to broaden our scope and our reach. That's really cool. And so if there are any grad students listening out there, how can or can they get involved? Can they become a contributing writer as well? Uh, yes, they can. You know, it kind of doesn't necessarily happen overnight. We usually end up bringing on new writers uh, in, in groups at different points throughout the year. But if you go to our website, which is oceanbites.org, uh, you'll see one of the, the bars right at the top says write for Ocean Bites. And that'll give you a little bit more information about who to contact and, and what to do in terms of that. Cool. And so you've written for another kind of student-run blog site, and it's called PLOS. For listeners, if you've never heard of PLOS, that probably sounds kind of weird. Can you explain, Gordon, what is PLOS and how did you get started writing for them? Um, so PLOS is basically a scientific journal, and they publish their stuff online, and it's all free access to the public. And I got folded into them. They, they put out a call. They have kind of like a different site that is run, I think, by a graduate student. But it was, it's a student blog. We're kind of the same idea as Ocean Bites, where, you know, you're basically looking at new research that's coming out and, and trying to summarize it, but also kind of throw in more of your own ideas. And so I, I've, I spent a little time writing with them, um, and they pull in people from, you know, the farthest reaches of the STEM field, really. So it's kind of an impressive group of people. Yeah. And so you mentioned that PLOS is a scientific journal that's free and it's, you know, available to the public. What do you think about, you know, some scientific journals like PLOS being free and open to the public and then other scientific journals charging money if you want to read an article from one of their journals? Uh, I am all about the free and open access to scientific papers, and I, I think it's huge. And I think, you know, we're talking here as two science communicators, and I think that's this is part of that process of really making science more accessible. You know, I, I can remember recently I was just kind of flipping through my Twitter feed, and I saw somebody link to what sounded like a really interesting paper that had to do with juvenile tuna development with ocean acidification. I was like, oh, I, I really want to read that. So I click the link and I get immediately directed to the site with the abstract and then a nice little button that says, do you want to read the rest of this? Please pay $40. I said, you know, are you kidding me? Like, I want to know this information. This is really exciting. I, you know, I should be able to access this without having to spend that much money or, or even any money. So I, I mean, I can see the merit of I guess some of those other journals that do charge for readership, but I think for the most part, we really need to do a better job of, of making our work as scientists accessible to anyone who wants to, to read it. Yeah, and I think that, like you mentioned earlier, scientific journal articles are hard enough for the public to read, you know, if if they're interested in reading it, they should be able to have access to it. That's that's my personal opinion. And I think it's great 
what you guys at Ocean Bites are doing because even those articles that aren't free, you know, that maybe you have access to via your university academia connections, you guys can translate those papers for people. So they don't have to go through the confusing jargon and they don't have to pay that whatever price to read the paper. So it's really awesome what you guys are doing. And so you have completed your PhD and you are officially a doctor. And uh, from here, you're actually going to be making a big move over to the West Coast. You're going to be doing a postdoc position at Claremont Colleges, and that's in Southern California. What's that going to be like for you? Because you're going from, I think you're going to be researching somewhat similar things as you did in your PhD research, but you're going from East Coast organisms and ecosystems to West Coast organisms and ecosystem. What's that going to be like for you, do you think? Uh, I could not be more excited, at least from the ecosystem perspective. I've always wanted to be uh, out on the West Coast uh, and looking at kind of the comparable ecosystems that are on the, you know, that we have on the East Coast. They're so diverse. I mean, they're just, they're beautiful from what I've seen and what I've gotten a chance to explore. So actually getting a chance to put my, my skills to the test in a, in a new area is going to be uh, a challenge, but it'll be really interesting and something I'm looking forward to. In terms of organisms that you'll be studying, obviously most of the organisms will be actual different species from the East Coast to the West Coast. I've done some traveling around and you know gotten to experience different marine ecosystems and organisms in very different parts of the world. And one thing that I've found is that even though the species are different place to place, oftentimes they either look similar or the kind of fundamental interactions between the organisms are similar. You know, when you're talking about a coastal ecosystem or an intertidal ecosystem or an open ocean ecosystem, what kind of fundamental similarities do you think there'll be for you in studying the coastal ecosystems you are studying in Rhode Island to those that you'll be studying on the West Coast? Oh, I definitely think there are going to be a number of similarities. And I think that's, you know, I kind of agree with you. And I've, I've been fortunate to do some traveling around as well. And I think that at the end of the day, it's really important for our research as scientists to try to draw parallels between different systems to try to make that work kind of more encompassing and to come up with a bigger, broader message. You know, so I'm going from working in kind of this temperate, prototypical New England rocky shore environment. And, you know, a lot of what I've found in terms of organism or community response to climate change, I would expect to see the same kind of factors in play on the West Coast, where, you know, you might be dealing with a few different environmental parameters, temperature and salinity, to name a few. But, you know, the interactions between the organisms are going to be similar. You know, as ecologists, we kind of think we have these nice unifying theories of, of kind of how and why certain interactions exist and the benefits of, of all of them. So I think, you know, my work specifically out in California will be actually I'll be moving away from seaweeds, but looking at a species of barnacles on the West Coast and looking at, you know, how are they adapted to different thermal environments? So, you know, barnacles being one of those organisms who spend a good chunk of their day either submerged or out in the open air, and those provide different thermal environments. And so kind of how is that impacting 
you know, their performance um, and also kind of looking at the role of food availability, because that's kind of one of the up and coming themes, at least in my field, is that, you know, even if even if an organism uh, is stressed out by, say, rising temperatures or acidification, usually if they have plenty of food, they might be able to be all right. Um, so we're kind of playing around a little bit with that and then are, are going to jump into kind of a broader comparison of populations along the West Coast, which experience totally different thermal environments and, and different variations of their thermal environment. So looking at a lot of adaptation and, and response to uh, thermal stress. Cool. Well, I definitely wish you all the best of luck on your big move from the East Coast to the West Coast and with your postdoc research. And for listeners, I'm going to be linking to Gordon's website. He has a his own personal website that he talks about his research on. It's super interesting. So you guys can check that out. I'll be linking to that when I post this podcast episode. And I will also link to his personal Twitter account. He posts lots of cool stuff on there um, about his research and, and others research as well. So you guys can check that out. And then in terms of Ocean Bites, uh, I'll be linking to their website, oceanbites.org, as well as their social media sites. They are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So I'll be linking to all of that so you guys can connect with Gordon if you are interested in learning more about his research or just interested in learning more about his passion for science communication. And also you guys can connect with Ocean Bites via their website or social media if you want to get involved in somehow being a writer for them, if you're a graduate student or you just want to read those awesome articles that they're writing about current scientific publications. So Gordon, I want to thank you so much for all the positive things that you're doing for the ocean by doing the research that you do and explaining oceanographic research to the public. Very much so appreciate it. And I also want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. All right, well, thank you very much for having me. This was great. You just heard Dr. Gordon Ober, recent PhD graduate explaining the latest oceanographic literature as a writer and editor for Ocean Bites, a graduate student-run blog. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at allisonrandolph.com. And tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.